0: If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 10 The Gospel of Mark chapter 10 Someone who listened to the sermon last Sunday online Said to me, you know you said in the sermon that you learned something new You know, in preparing for the sermon But there wasn't anything new to me um, And my response was, that, that's Okay My responsibility is not to come up with new material, but to remind us of what we already know, maybe what we have forgotten, or in fact, it may have faded from our awareness. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or a personality thing, sometimes I do feel the pressure to come up with something new, you know, something snappy, you know, to get your attention. Um, But I don't think that's my calling. As your pastor, it is rather to open scripture and to explain it. And oftentimes we come across a passage that is quite familiar. That's the case today. It's the story of what is known as the rich young ruler. Uh, You'll notice as we read through it, uh, the NIV has a heading, the rich young man. But uh, as, as far as him being a ruler, we're told that in Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record this particular incident. It begins in verse number 17. And like our passage last week, it begins with a question. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Several things should be noted right away about This young man, he came running up to Jesus. He fell on his knees and asked a question. Evidently, he was anxious. He was concerned. It was important to him to have an answer to his question. You will notice that other people weren't doing this. One might even say they were careless and indifferent about the whole matter. But not this man. He wants to know. He shows reverence. He shows respect for Jesus. He calls Jesus good teacher. Contrast this with what we've seen of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who seemingly opposed Jesus at every turn and even accused him of being used by Satan, that he was in the power of Beelzebub. And we know that they were, in fact, planning to destroy him. This young man apparently has heard about Jesus. This man knows there's a kindness about him, there's a generosity about him, a goodness. And so he calls him good teacher. And he asks Jesus a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does he mean by this question? I do history. That's my field of study. And one of the great dangers in the field of history is what we call anachronism. That is to have something in the past with something from the present. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, In Julius Caesar, written by William Shakespeare... Act 2, scene 1 Brutus and Cassius are talking to each other and Brutus says, peace, count the clock Cassius says, the clock has stricken in three well, clocks were not invented during that time, and so Shakespeare has anachronistically put this back during that time or in the movie Forrest Gump something more contemporary um In the movie Forrest Gump invests in 1975 in Apple stock. But that's not possible because Apple didn't actually make its stock public until 1980. So it's a case of projecting backwards. And so it is with this question. Because we might imagine that the question is, what must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to be saved? And I don't think that's what this man is asking. This isn't what he has in mind. I think he may have been thinking in terms of Daniel chapter 12. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That is to say, he recognized, as did the Jews, that this is sort of part one of the story. There is part two that is yet to come. And he wants to know, how does he get to part two in a good way? That he will be raised to everlasting or to eternal life. He doesn't want everlasting contempt but everlasting life. I would point out something here. I've mentioned before that Mark doesn't arrange his material chronologically, but rather thematically. In the previous section, two verses earlier, in fact, verse number 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. But this man doesn't ask, how may I receive eternal life, but how may I inherit it? Unless we think, well, boy, this guy's rather you know, full of himself, that he thinks he can do something to inherit it. This, in fact, is the language of the Apocrypha. You find this over and over again, the idea of inheriting eternal life. In his case, I think he said it as a question of achievement. What can I do to achieve, to inherit eternal life? Rather than thinking, or rather perhaps he has not heard what Jesus has said about receiving the kingdom as a child and as gift, um, he wants to inherit it. But I wouldn't call his sincerity into question. Um, no, I, I think he is really genuinely sincere. He wants to know the answer to the question. And it seems, at least for the moment, that he's willing to do anything to achieve his goal of eternal life. There is a problem, though, and one that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that is he wants the story to be based on his narrative. He wants the answer to fit in with his story as he sees it. So how does Jesus respond? Well, we've seen this time and time again. Jesus responds to a question with a question. Verse number 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus calls into question, what do you mean when you say good? I would say, from his answer, goodness is defined by human achievement. The young man thought he, in fact, as we'll see in a few verses, he had, in fact, achieved goodness. And so he uses this title with regard to Jesus. But Jesus challenges this How dare you use a word for me that should be used for God alone? In other words, Jesus is saying you're not conceiving of goodness in an adequate way when you so lightly address me as good teacher. And when I say lightly, um, I I think he's sincere. But uh, I think Jesus wants him to think a bit deeper about what he's saying. If you want to think about what's good, you need to think about God and not about the man who's in front of you. You are ascribing to me what belongs to God alone. Jesus is in fact God the young man doesn't know that he doesn't acknowledge that he sees before him merely a teacher who can give him directions I want to get to eternal life I want to inherit it can you please give me direction good teacher as we will see if the young man really believed that Jesus was good he would do what Jesus said in a few verses to come But that's not what happened. He does not obey him. So having asked a question, Jesus now begins an answer. Verse number 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Things to think about here in this verse. First of all, Jesus deals with what is known as the second table of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. The second six deal with our relationship with our fellow human beings. And Jesus quotes from this. He doesn't even get to the the matter of his relationship to God. But this young man and how he treats other people. Um, The second thing, and I don't know if you caught it, um, Jesus says do not defraud. If you know the Ten Commandments at all, that's not one of them, is it? I would argue that he has substituted do not defraud defraud for do not covet that in fact um, well I've mentioned before in Romans chapter 7 Paul said you know he thought he was a good person a perfect person and he until he came to the law and it destroyed him and what was the commandment that destroyed him it was the 10th one do not covet because before you break any of God's laws you covet you think that you know what is best and I would say here that in the same vein um This man has, in fact, defrauded. Coveting begins in the heart. You know, stealing, we'd say, your hands, murder, with your hands. Um, But it all begins in the heart. And defrauding begins in the heart as well. Um, The law is summarized in two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do not love your neighbor as yourself, you are, in fact, defrauding your neighbor. I think there may be something else involved here. I'll get to it in a minute, but it's just my opinion. In the three gospel accounts of this, as Jesus gives the six commandments, the second table, he puts honor your father and mother at the end. Again, if you know the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother is the beginning of the second table. It's commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. I can't help but wonder why does Jesus put this at the end and why does he put in do not defraud? You may remember in an earlier confrontation with the Pharisees, uh, Jesus spoke about Korban, Aramaic word, which means basically, you know, when you inherit something from your parents, you are then supposed to take care of your parents. But you can wiggle your way out of that if you say, oh, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, the money I was going to use to feed you and take care of you, I have dedicated that to God. I can't help but wonder if, in fact, that's what this young man has done. He has defrauded his parents. And the very last commandment that Jesus talks about is honor your father and your mother. Could it be that Jesus is, in fact, pointing to a failure in this man's life, something that he's failed to see? How does this man answer? Verse number 20. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. One commentator has written, here superficial smugness is struggling with deep discontent. If, in fact, this young man has kept the law perfectly his whole life, Why is he struggling? Why does he come to Jesus? Why does he fall at his feet and say, what must I do to inherit? Listen, you've done everything. You've kept the law perfectly. What are you concerned about? But there is the inner struggle. He knows that something is missing. Um, I'd say one of the things that's missing is, in fact, an honesty. He has not, in fact, kept all of these perfectly. No one can. And as James tells us, if you break one, you're guilty of breaking them all. His pride remains. He is quite, well, he is proud and blinded by his pride, thinking that he is a good person. What follows is, to me, perhaps the most moving statement in the entire Gospel of Mark. Verse number 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One might expect either literally or verbally, a back, you know, backhanded slap to the head. It's like, seriously? You're going to stand here in front of all these people? You're going to stand here in front of me and tell me that you've kept the law perfectly since you were a boy? I mean, as was the case, we'll see in a minute, last week, Jesus could, in fact, have won the argument like that. But he looks at him, And he loves him. And I would argue that this is remarkable. It is so remarkable that there are some commentators who would say, um, yeah, the reason Jesus loved him is because Jesus knew that later on the the, the guy would get saved. And so he was one of his people. That's why Jesus loved him. And I would disagree. I think the answer that Jesus gives to this man is proof that he loves him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't kept all the commandments. What's wrong with you? That's negative. Some positively, someone might have said, what you need to do is put your faith in me. You need to put your trust in me. What does Jesus say? In essence, he does say, trust in me. You like, wait a minute, he, d- he didn't say that, but doesn't he? When Jesus says to the young man, give away, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He's saying, stop putting your trust in your financial status. in the fact that you have money and you have possessions, you need to get rid of that, that you are trusting in. And instead, follow me. Trust me. Do not keep or put your trust in keeping the law, which is imperfect, by the way. And do not put your trust in your possessions, but trust in me. What we hear here is genuine love and affection for this man. Jesus does not allow him to rest secure in his own self-righteousness, his perceived perfection but neither does he destroy him with the truth. Neither does he say, you you hypocrite, you liar. He loves this person. I see a parallel with what we saw last week in the passage on divorce, that rather than quoting from Malachi 2, where God says, I hate divorce, Jesus begins by asking the Pharisees a question. They're trying to trap him, you may remember, with a question that has political, theological, and social implications. They're trying to box him in. And Jesus, instead of giving an answer, asks a question that takes them all the way back, not to Deuteronomy, but all the way back to Genesis. What did Moses command you? And they answer, Moses permitted Jesus goes back to creation. What was God's original intent? And then he quotes from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Adam and Eve were married in the garden. They were the only human beings alive. So who was a witness to this wedding, to this marriage? God was. And who was presiding? God was therefore what God has joined together let not man separate after Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden marriage continued among human beings It's not something that came as a result of the fall marriage isn't the result of sin it was there before the fall and who is the witness now that we have sinned God is the witness and who is the presiding authority God is the Pharisees wanted to begin in deuteronomy that is in a broken world where the world has been destroyed by sin that's where they want to begin and there's a part of me that wants to say that's not necessarily wrong we are broken and as we try to put the pieces together that's what we should do but we need to go back to the way god originally intended it what's the blueprint okay what's the pattern rather than imagining and coming up with our own pattern. And so you find theologically, uh, throughout the centuries, Christians oftentimes are going on with the latest philosophical trend because they begin in a broken world rather than in the perfect world when God created the world. I find it fascinating that rather than trying to do a slam dunk and win the argument, which is the way I think we tend to be, Jesus wants them to think. It's the case here as well. And why is it? Why isn't that Jesus doesn't just destroy this young man? Why doesn't he say, what is wrong with you? And then begin to list all the times he had broken the commandments. Why doesn't he do that? Because he loves him. Because he looked at him and he loved him. And his response is not a one-size-fits-all, but it is specific to this young man. Jesus doesn't have sort of a mimeograph sheet of an answer to give to everyone who comes along. It is specifically for this man. So what Jesus says, you know, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, this is not something that Jesus is saying to every Christian That would, in fact, make Jesus, I would say, less than loving, because it's just a cookie-cutter. This is the way everybody has to do it. We know, in fact, from Scripture, that there are the followers of God who were wealthy. Abraham, the father of faith, those who are of the faith of Abraham, he is the father of all, Paul writes in Romans 4. And in Galatians 3, understand then that those who who believe are children of Abraham. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Abraham was fabulously wealthy. So what Jesus tells the young man is not a condemnation of wealth or possessions. Jesus does not do a one-size-fits-all. What he is saying to this young man indirectly is, you know what keeps you from following me? is you have put your faith, your story is tied to your possessions and to your wealth. And until you get rid of that story, until you get rid of that thing in which you put your faith, you will be lost. You will not know the truth. I think the young man probably didn't recognize that his wealth, his possessions, were the basis of his identity and of his faith. Jesus says, listen, give this away. You'll have treasure in heaven. He doesn't want treasure in heaven. He wants the treasure he has right now here on earth. He wanted to have and keep his treasure here on earth now. But then also in the second part of the story to have it with him as well. Verse number 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I found it hard to resist the temptation while writing this sermon to say to this man, yeah, so what about the good teacher stuff? I mean, you like Jesus as a good teacher until he tells you something and then you walk away. You won't listen to him. This is not what Jesus does, though. What we read is of a man who is deeply disappointed. He went away sad. It's not what he expected to hear. It's not what he expected. I think he could see what Jesus said as an attack on his identity. I'm a rich man. And now, if I do what you say, I'm only going to be a man. I'm not going to be a rich man. And confronted with the choice, Put your faith in what you have Or put your faith in Jesus He couldn't walk away From what he had He refused He refused to follow Jesus What does Jesus say Verse number 23 Jesus looked around and said to his disciples How hard it is for the rich To enter the kingdom of God The young man has left Jesus is telling his disciples, it is difficult for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Verse number 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. Why? Because like so many, then and now, they associate wealth with a sign of God's favor. That if you're wealthy, then God must like you. He's blessed you. In fact, when we speak of someone getting something, oh, God has blessed this person With whatever it is they have. It's what we hear from Job's friends. uh, As we saw this when we went through the book of Job. They assume that he's lost all his possessions. Because he has sinned against God. One of them says. All his days the wicked man suffers torment. The ruthless through all the years stored up for him. He will no longer be rich. And his wealth will not endure. Nor will his possessions spread over the land. I think this is the attitude the disciples have. I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons they're following Jesus is they're hoping somewhere along the line the kingdom will come, Jesus will be king, they'll be the courtiers, you know, the, his counselors, and they will have power and they will have wealth. In John chapter 9, that's the story of the blind man. Uh, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. It may be that at this point in his ministry, Jesus has not yet given the parable of the rich fool. It's like, I've got a great harvest. My barn's not big enough. What I'll do? I know I'll tear them down and build bigger barns. And perhaps at this point, he's not told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But the disciples should have known better. If they've gone to synagogue, if they've listened as the book of Psalms read, they should have known something. From Psalm 73, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. And then the psalmist goes on to say, when I tried to understand this, why are wicked people rich? It was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Yet to be wealthy is not necessarily a sign of God's favor. And then there is that wonderful passage in Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. The disciples are amazed. They're shocked. So Jesus repeats what he said. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. For those of you who are following along in the NIV, you'll see that who trusts in riches is a footnote uh, at the bottom of the page. And here we come to see more clearly what I have suggested to you, that the young man put his trust in his riches. That was the problem. Jesus continues, verse number 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Some people have tried to come up with an explanation for what this means. I think it's to be taken quite literally. It is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In the same way, it is impossible for someone who trusts in his or her wealth to enter the kingdom of God, because they're trusting in that rather than trusting in the Lord Jesus. So, for example, in the ancient world, uh, at nighttime, they would close the city gates. But, you know, what if you were outside, you need to get in? Well, they had a small gate that was known as the needle's eye, And so let's say you've come on a caravan and you've got a couple of camels and they've closed the gates. And how are you going to get in? Well, you unload your camels and put the stuff through and then you get your camels on their knees and they sort of crawl in. And that's what it's like for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. No, no, it is impossible for those who trust in anything other than the Lord Jesus to enter the kingdom verse 26 the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other who then can be saved Jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but not with God all things are possible with God disciples means amazement upon amazement because it seemed that Jesus was closing the door to everyone listen if the rich folks don't get in how are the poor slobs like us going to get in If the rich don't get in, how can we get in? Um, Jesus' response lets us know He's not talking about that little gate, the needle's eye, and the city gate, okay? Because He's talking about something that's impossible. For rich and the poor, anyone who puts their confidence, their faith in something other than Him, they're not getting in. It is impossible. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. We are completely, utterly dependent upon God, rich or poor, young or old. um, It is only by grace that we can enter the kingdom. Then we come to verse number 28, which to me almost seems like a sharp right turn or left turn, however you want it. Um, Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. How do you take this? Because it doesn't seem to flow exactly with what Jesus is saying unless you go back to what Jesus told the young man and that is to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And Peter's like, done that, check it. You know, We've left everything. We've given up everything to follow you. What you told that man, we have done. I can't help but wonder if they think, so we're in, right? <laughs> we're in the kingdom because what you told That guy, we've done that. We've left everything to follow you. Will we in fact have treasure in heaven like you said to the rich young ruler? Verse 29. I tell you the truth, replied Jesus. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, mothers, Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with them persecutions in the age to come eternal life. Jesus makes a startling promise here regarding those who have chosen to follow him. And that is, if their confidence is in fact not in possessions or in family, but in Jesus, they understand the gospel. And if they understand the gospel and recognize that Jesus is their Lord, no matter what the cost is, then they, in fact, in this life will receive more than what they lost. Now, two things here. First of all, I, let's not skip over the fact that persecutions is part of the package. Okay? Um, we'd like to, but we can't. Okay. Um, also, you'll notice you know, the brothers, uh, sisters, mothers, children, but fathers aren't mentioned in the second list because God is our father. What Jesus is speaking about is the church, the family of God, that if, in fact, we think we are alone, that we are orphans, uh, our family has kicked us out because we are following Jesus. We now belong to a much larger family who will, by God's grace, share with us their possessions, bring us into their homes. They will, in fact, share with us and we will receive more than anything that we have given up. When we become a part of the kingdom, we gain brothers and sisters. We gain mothers and children and even possessions. We also gain an obligation to help those who are in need. I find it interesting, and I don't know if you caught it, but at the end here, he speaks of eternal life. This is only the second time. It's only mentioned twice in the book of Mark. The first time was the young man who said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here Jesus speaks of eternal life. Um, I would suggest to you that while we might like the term eternal life more, we find that Jesus uses eternal life interchangeably with the kingdom of God and with life, life itself. So if you go to chapter nine, In verse number 43, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, maimed, than with two hands and go into hell. It's like, wait a minute, I'm already here in life. Oh, you're talking about something else. You're talking about being a part of the kingdom of God. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Then verse 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. Ah, he's been talking about entering life. That's the kingdom of God. That is eternal life. He uses these terms interchangeably. To be in Christ is to be a part of the kingdom of God. It is life itself. It is eternal life. And then verse number 31, which, again, might seem out of place, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I think what Jesus is saying simply is, we've got things backwards. We've got things in reverse order. You may, rem- may remember that the disciples earlier were arguing about who is the greatest among them. And Jesus tells them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and servant of all. And as we shall see, the Lord willing, next Sunday, the disciples still didn't get it because James and John want to be at the right and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. I wonder if we get it right. Two things here before we close. In speaking the gospel, what is our goal? Are we trying to win the argument? Are we trying to win the debate? Or do we want people to think? What drives us? What motivates us when we speak the truth to other people? What motivated Jesus? It was love. He loved this young man. And instead of slapping him down and saying, you liar, don't, I, you've broken the commandments, OK? No one is perfect. And instead, he hits him where he is sensitive To open his eyes to the reality that he put his confidence in his wealth and was unwilling to follow Jesus. There's a field of theology known as apologetics. Um, Oftentimes I find in books on apologetics, I'm being a bit judgmental here, I don't hear love. I hear how to win the argument. And I think Jesus would have none of that. And then the last verse, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Flannery O'Connor, in the last year of her life, wrote a short story called Revelation. It's known as a Gothic, Southern, Southern Gothic short story. And it's about a certain woman named Mrs. Turpin, a proud, self righteous, rural, middle class white woman who is quite confident in her own righteousness and her own salvation until one night she has a vision of the final judgment at the last judgment the people whom she detests and look down on are at the front of the line and she and her friends are at the back of the line the first shall be last the last shall be first as I said, O'Connor wrote this in the last year of her life as she was hospitalized. She died at the age of 39 of lupus. And she actually hid the manuscript under her pillow. She was writing on, sort of on the sly and, and finished this final short story. While she was in the hospital, she wrote a letter to a friend and she signed it, Mrs. Turpin. She recognized what we so often fail to recognize. That we may think of ourselves more highly than we do. We think we're going to be at the head of the line. Our story is upside down. Our faith is not to be in ourselves in any perceived righteousness, any goodness. I'm the pastor for goodness sake. Shouldn't I be at the head of the line? No. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Don't say, well, I've left everything, given everything to follow Jesus, so I should be at the front of the line. Uh, I think we're more like Mrs. Turpin than we might care to recognize. It is only by the grace of God that we are his children. Let's pray together. Our Father, oftentimes it is the case that we think we are speaking the truth to defend the truth, to defend you and your cause, when in reality we're just trying to win an argument. We want to have the upper hand. I thank you for the amazing example of Jesus, who obviously could have easily won any argument. And yet because of his great love for the people with whom he was engaged He sought to draw them out To get them to think Rather than to win any type of interaction As we live our lives, as we speak to those around us May our hearts be filled with your love And may our conversations reflect that And may we remember that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Our confidence is not in ourselves or anything we have or can do, but is to be in the Lord Jesus and him alone. On this Pentecost Sunday, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts and open our eyes And recognize that he will do so gently Because he loves us Just as Jesus loved this young man May we listen, may we be attentive And by your grace become more and more like the Lord Jesus Thank you for bringing us together today The first day of a new week As we leave this place, may your spirit and grace go with us. May we have a sense of your presence every moment of every day in the week to come. Thank you for loving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.